you, you think of, of really great, you know, political leaders. And what you see is after going through this for, you know, five years or six years or seven years or eight years or however many years they can stand it, a lot of people just quit. This is not a wonderful job that people are dying for. And uh, it's hard and, and they're frustrated and they hope and they, they seek change. But it's, it's something where I think if you could get some momentum going here on change, you'll see that a lot of the insiders will actually be excited. That's Michael Porter, who teamed up with Catherine Gale to write the new book, The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens, part of the HBR Presents Network. We live in a world of overwhelming options, and whether you're an entrepreneur, an executive, or just someone who wants to make the most out of your time and money, committing to just one thing can feel impossible. That's called FOMO, and it's short for fear of missing out. How do I know? Because I coined the term. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, the show where I ask entrepreneurial thinkers how they make personal and professional decisions in a world of overwhelming choice. Last week, I was joined by Catherine Gale and Michael Porter to talk all about their powerful and yet surprisingly straightforward diagnosis for why America's political system is broken. Their analysis, which is contained in their new book, lays out how the American political system is designed to serve the two dominant political parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, instead of the American people. It's this duopoly that creates gridlock, and it's the reason why not much gets done in Washington these days, despite the urgent need for reform and legislation on big and thorny problems, things like immigration, entitlements, public safety, health care, you name it. On today's episode, Catherine and Michael are back to talk solutions. And as you'll see, they have come up with an action plan that is actually achievable. It won't be easy, but with the combined efforts of citizens, business leaders, academics, and political leaders, they believe that it is possible to change the system. As you regular listeners know well, FOMO Sapiens is all about how entrepreneurial thinkers make decisions to drive change. And just as you can take that approach in the business world, you can also take it in the political sphere. So if you're feeling pessimistic about the state of affairs in the world and you're wondering if there's anything that you can do, here's a chance to learn about how political innovation works and what it can achieve. And then stick around for a fascinating faux moment of the show with Jeff Clements, co-founder and CEO of American Promise, which is seeking the passage of a 28th Amendment to the Constitution in order to allow the U.S. Congress and states to set reasonable limits on campaign spending in U.S. elections. It's not every day that you meet someone who's actually trying to add an amendment to the Constitution, so make sure to listen in. And now, onto the interview. To begin our discussion about how we can solve the problems in the U.S. political system, I started by asking Catherine to explain how she and Michael came up with their proposed plan of action. Our criteria for what we recommend is things that are both powerful, which is to say this reform would address a root cause of the systemic dysfunction and achievable, which is to say, can we get it done in years, not decades? So for example, there are some changes to our system that would be powerful, but they're not achievable because they would require a constitutional amendment. Conversely, there are some things that are achievable, they'd be easier to do, but they're not powerful enough to change the likelihood that Congress delivers results. They might make us feel better about our democracy, but they won't change results. So for us, what's so amazing is that it turns out that the things that are most powerful are actually achievable. 
And I wasn't necessarily expecting that. Um, now, when I say they're achievable, that doesn't mean I say they're easy. I just mean that we can get them done because they're not constitutional amendments and they don't require Congress itself to act. So this is about changing the rules of the game. And as we talked about last week, one of the things that happens in our current political system is that you have the two parties, which have very fired up voters and they have primaries. And in these primaries, a very small percentage of people actually votes. And so they're the people who are most at the extremes and the people in the middle typically do not participate. And for example, independents are not participating in many of the primaries. So I guess things start there, right? How do we begin to change the rules of the game? The first is we're going to get rid of party primaries. We need to get rid of party primaries because party primaries create a very tiny eye of the needle through which no problem-solving politician can pass, meaning that if someone in Congress votes on a huge uh, landmark compromise piece of legislation on one of our biggest issues, they will likely not make it back through their primary, you know, a Democrat on their side, a Republican on their side. They're more incented to just not solve the issue and continue to pay lip service to their ideology. So that's why party primaries are an enormous impediment to getting results. So let's get rid of party primaries. And instead, we'll have a single ballot, nonpartisan primary. We call it a top five primary. So when you go to the primary um, election, you vote and the top five finishers automatically advance to the general election. Then the second thing we need to change is implement ranked choice voting in the general election. So now you'd have five competitors coming out of the primary. They compete in a dynamic, you know, general election campaign season. And when you go to the polls, you can rank up to five. You can rank as few as one if you want, or you can rank up to five, which is essentially, this is my first choice, my second choice, my third, all the way to your last choice, which is similar to saying over my dead body, do I want that person to be elected? Okay, I want to stop right there because you've just given us so much information. So let's let's think about this a little bit more. On the first part, this this open primary is really interesting because if you think about the way they're done today, you have a Democratic primary, you have a Republican primary, and then you select one person from each, and then they compete in the general election, and maybe you have independents, but you sort of already have a preordained uh, Republican and Democrat in the final. And here you would get rid of that. So you might have five Democrats or five Republicans or five independents, and you're not giving a, the parties each sort of a preordained slot, which is really important, right? Especially given the fact that a very small group of people actually vote in the primary. So, so I, I, I think that's very interesting. And the second thing you talk about is ranked choice voting. Now, we've talked about ranked choice voting on the show before, but just as a reminder, because it can be a little confusing, here's how it works. You go into the ballot box, you have, say, those five candidates, and you rank them from one to five. You don't have to, but you have the option to do so. And then when the votes are tabulated, they have what's called an instant runoff. Basically, uh, there are rounds, and in each round, the lowest 
vote getter is eliminated and then their votes are reallocated based on the preferences. Say somebody had voted for the person who got the lowest number of votes, um, their second choice would then receive their vote. And so what happens is, say you vote for somebody who comes in dead last, your vote isn't wasted, it's reallocated, and then you actually get to have a say in the election going forward. And what happens is, politicians recognize that you know even if they're very popular with 20% of the people and those people love them it's not enough so there is an incentive for them to actually try to build a broader coalition and uh, you have to have 50% to eventually stop the counting so you keep on eliminating the bottom vote getter until somebody gets 50% and what's great there is then one candidate actually has a mandate now Catherine let's talk about incentives and how these play out what does this drive in terms of behavior? Final five voting will change the incentives so that politicians are incented to do what we need them to do. Final five voting will create a connection and a powerful connection between politicians acting in the public interest and their likelihood of getting reelected. When you have ranked choice voting, you eliminate this problem that you referred to a moment ago, the spoiler effect, which means that under final five voting, we will be able to have new competitors because the spoiler effect, which is the largest barrier to entry, will be out of the system. So with final five voting, you won't have the party primary problem. You won't have the spoiler effect problem. So together we can get results and we have accountability for getting those results. It's also worth noting that these types of electoral systems and reforms are actually already in effect in some parts of the country and the world. So you have these, these multi-party primaries in California and Washington state. You have ranked choice voting in Maine and in New York City, and it's on the ballot in Massachusetts this year. And it's been in effect in Australia for a long time, and it works fine there. And so it's pretty uncontroversial in, in terms of its efficacy. What I always wonder, though, is if we think it makes sense uh, to adopt it, we have to overcome this existential problem, which is that politicians, they know how the system works today. They know how to make it benefit them. So why would they accept any changes that take away their power, take away their ability to operate in a system that is so favorable to them? There's two important answers to that. First, how do we get parties to go against their interests? Well, in the first place, in half the states, we don't have to require the political parties or the current elected officials to take any action. Citizens can get a final five voting uh, you know, resolution on the ballot and they can vote for it the same way they vote for a candidate. So if they can get 50% plus one vote, they can change the law in their state to move from our current system to final five voting. In the other states, the other half of the states, it really does take the state legislature to pass a bill and the governor to sign it. And there's a different strategy for making it happen in those states. But nonetheless, we can be well on our way with half the states just by citizen action. But there are people, very powerful people, who are able to set the agenda who are going to lose out, right? It, it's, it's uncontestable that some people who have long benefited will no longer benefit. There's no question there will be some uh, actors in the politics industry who will lose some power because they've optimized around the existing system. But if 
But for many, many people, the system will work much better. So if you're a member of Congress right now, you probably got into politics because you really wanted to make a difference. And it's actually, and we talked to people about this, super frustrating to get there and discover that what you need to do to get fundraising dollars and to please your party leadership and to make it back through your party primary is different than what you know needs doing. Well, that's uh, very unsatisfying. And so there are a lot of people who would like to work in a system where they get rewarded for doing what people say behind closed doors they know is the right thing to do, whereas in our current system, they can't. So I think that it's not as not in the interest of the players as we might think. Now, you will find that uh, leadership and those with the most power who have optimized their position in the existing system will not want to see that disrupted. It's good that we can pass this through referendum in many cases. Michael, you mentioned earlier that you know you went to Capitol Hill and you saw this dysfunction with your own two eyes. And I'm curious, as you now go around the country together with Catherine, you guys talk about these ideas. What do the politicians say to you? Do they admit to you that actually, you know, that they, that they got into politics for a totally different reason, that they're spending all their time raising money and it's frustrating and that they would love to see these reforms? Or do they sort of say, yeah, sounds nice, but, you know, it's not going to happen? You got to understand, an elected official that's not the House Speaker or the President of the Senate is very much under the thumb of the leader of their side. Uh, their bill won't even get introduced much less voted on unless the party leadership says, okay. And they won't have, they don't have any influence independent of uh, being in good standing in the party. They won't get a committee chair, chairmanship. They won't, they'll have no degrees of freedom to do what they, they all, they, they all did this mostly for public service. You know, maybe a few didn't, but most of them did. And they want to, they want to do good. So I think uh, they, they, they do understand that the system has to change if that's, lack of ability to, to do what they do what they want to do to be a good public servant is going to happen. Yeah. And we forget that people get into this for the right reasons and it's not an easy job running for office, putting yourself out there, facing criticism, having to constantly raise money, and then actually not really getting anything done. It's got to be super frustrating, right? And so that's why you see so many people leaving and retiring because people just sort of get sick of it and they just give up, throw up their hands, and then go back to their home states. You you think of, of really great, you know, political leaders, and what you see is after going through this for you know five years or six years or seven years or eight years or however many years they can stand it, a lot of people just quit. So uh, I happen to know Evan Bai, who's a senator from Indiana and, uh, uh, you know, comes from a political family and his dream in life was to, you know, be a senator and he was a governor first and, and, he, and, and then he became a senator and, and he, he did his best and, but, you know, uh, eventually he just said, no, I don't want to do this anymore. So I think, I think you see how strong the, negative, the negatives are of actually being an elected official this is not a wonderful job that people are dying for, and uh, it's hard, and and they're frustrated, and they hope, and they they seek change, but it's it's something where I think if you could get some momentum going here on change, 
you'll see that a lot of the insiders will actually be uh, excited and hopeful that things will get better. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to NetSuite.com slash FOMO. That's NetSuite.com slash FOMO. NetSuite.com slash FOMO. And it's worth noting that in your work, you were not coming at this from an ideological perspective. In fact, it's my understanding that you two have different political views and you favor different candidates. So it's not that you're both from the left or both from the right, but in fact are coming together with something practical. And you've also gotten leaders from both sides of the aisle to chime in. You have a forward to the book that is written by a Republican and a Democrat. So tell me a little bit about that. The forward was written by two very impressive newer members of Congress. We have Republican Congressman Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin, a former veteran who was elected in 2016, and Democratic Congresswoman Chrissy Houlihan from Pennsylvania, another former veteran, another veteran who was elected in 2018. And they wrote this forward because they said, wow, when we were serving in the military, we were on the same side for America. And we came to public service because we want to continue to work for America. And yet now, all of a sudden, we're automatically on different sides. And I'll just uh, read a little quote from their forward at the end. This is what they say. The next generation of elected leaders is not required to carry on the dysfunctional legacy of gridlock and bad blood that has defined our recent politics. We must match our love of country with a system that's designed to serve the people not the political industrial complex. We want to look back on our careers in public service and see that we were able to make American lives better coast to coast. And then they really asked people to get engaged, which is the same, essentially the same thing Michael and I say in our conclusion, you know, which is we want people to get engaged. And so these, these uh, really courageous Congress people are evidence of the kind of leadership that we think we'll see both from, you know, citizens, business leaders, and, you know, over time from politicians themselves to say, we, we can't keep doing what we're doing. This is madness. And of course, we don't just need politicians to get on board. We all need to get on board. So for those of us who are listening to this and saying, what can I do? Catherine, get us started. What can we do to participate in changing the system? Thank you for asking that question. In the end, it is all about action. I remember in our initial Harvard Business School report, we talked about not wanting to, quote unquote, simply add to the depressing commentary about politics, but rather figure out precisely what we could do to change it 
to change the system powerfully enough to change the results the system delivers? And the answer to that today is that we need people to get involved in their state or nationally to push final five voting. So we've got to change this rule across the country. And how to do that is to go to a website of a new organization that I just founded um, to continue the work that Michael and I write about in the politics industry. And it, the website is politicalinnovation.org, but that's political-innovation.org. And there, your listeners will be able to find resources and be connected with us so we can connect them to the campaign in their state or help them to start a campaign in their state and also help them if they'd like to become a political philanthropist. Now, that's a term that I had not come across before. And now I think it's kind of an interesting term. It sounds kind of cool. But how do you define political philanthropy? What does it entail? Political philanthropy is the idea that that there can be a special interest for the general interest. Uh, a friend of mine, David Crane, came up with that, a special interest for the general interest. And these are people who choose to not just invest in a cause directly, like if they're passionate about education, they don't just invest in charter schools or other education improvement efforts. They also invest in structural political reform with the idea that if we can transform the effectiveness of our political system, we can transform the spending, the trillions of dollars of government spending, including hundreds of billions of dollars of spending in education, and that that is in the end the most powerful, the mo sort of offers the best ROI of any philanthropic investment available today. And so that's where the money comes from. And that's the great thing about politics. Yes, you can be a philanthropist and give money, but you can also give time. You can think entrepreneurially. And as we all know, big changes start with people and ideas and getting out there and building something grassroots level, and everybody can participate in that. Now, Michael, as you look at this, this very complex industry and the changes that you two recommend, why should we feel optimistic one of the things I, I often find myself saying uh, when I'm going to give a talk on this topic, uh, and uh, Catherine's often there, so she's heard me say this many times. So we, we hope this, this session has not ruined your day. I mean, it, it is depressing that our system works this way and we just can't confront and, and make progress on any of our most important challenges. So the point of this whole exercise can't just be tell the story. It has to be about getting to action. And, uh, uh, you know, Catherine in particular is deeply involved in that network, growing network of people across the country that's involved in this. Uh, there's just lots more activity, more organizations, more people that are starting to uh, kind of understand these ideas and start to put them into place. The good news is there's, there's unmistakable signs that this is starting to ramp up and that we're starting to see movement. And, uh, uh, you know, this, this year, 2020, may be a, a, an amazing year in, in terms of, of, of putting in place some of these key rules that are going to be critical to uh, actually changing the system. And 
it then what will be is it'll be a nonlinear effect. If you can start to change a few things, then you'll be able to change more. And if you can change more, then you'll be able to change more and you'll get more support. This is an area where a lot of people have no hope. They have no insight or understanding. And they've seen a lot of well-meaning efforts and a lot of proposals in the past, and they haven't seemed to make any difference. So I think the question we have here is creating hope and creating uh, examples of, of things that are working. And luckily, we have those already, and hopefully we'll have many more. I'm glad we're ending on an optimistic note because I do feel optimism. I think we all can go out there and we can start to change things. There is a very clear roadmap that you've laid out in the book and one that we should follow. So everybody check out the book. It's The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. Catherine Gale and Michael Porter, thanks for being here. Thank you, Patrick. Loved being here. Thanks for the great questions. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos fomos sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. And now it's time for the FOMO moment of the show. And today I'm joined by Jeff Clements, co-founder and CEO of American Promise. Jeff is working full-time on the passage of a 28th Amendment to the Constitution to repeal Citizens United, that Supreme Court ruling that essentially opened the door to unlimited money in politics. Now, you might have noticed that the solutions that Catherine and Michael recommended earlier on in the show steered clear of anything that required a constitutional amendment, as it's a pretty heavy lift. But Jeff believes that it is possible to get one passed, and as you're about to learn, he's made some real progress towards his objective. But before we go there, I wanted to start our conversation by asking Jeff to explain the problem he's trying to solve. The problem as we see it is that we're going to be unable to get people to participate as equal citizens in our democracy if we don't treat them that way. And as long as we can't have reasonable limits on money and how it's used in elections and how it corrupts the process, um, nobody believes that they're actually being treated as equal citizens in a republic. And so that's the problem we solve. So there's a sort of boring, wonky answer. We're solving the problem of campaign finance and how money corrupts the system. But the much bigger systemic answer, and which is why it's a constitutional amendment, is that we're solving the problem of um, the age-old problem in America, that do we really believe we're all created equal and can govern effectively together? Um, that's our big mission, our big goal. And that's why we think we really have to lock it into the Constitution. And so how did you end up taking on this cause? Why, why, did, why you to, to, to go for this political amendment? You know, for the first few years after the Supreme Court did strike down the campaign finance laws, I did some more legal work in the area, and it became clear that we basically had a fundamental disagreement. Um, these cases are five to four. Most Americans think we should have reasonable limits on how money is used in elections. Um, 
But there was this big constitutional issue that was going to fundamentally shape how America and our democracy was going to look. And I felt like it should not be left to lawyers and judges. And the beauty of a constitutional amendment campaign is it invites Americans into the process to decide what do we believe? What do we think the Constitution means? And when we do that, we usually get it right. You know, we decide, yeah, women should vote. You know, we should end slavery and allow equal protection of the laws. Those are all amendments. So um, it started as a way of breaking out of this sort of lawyer, judges, law professor discussion that most Americans weren't clued in on or invited to talk about. Um, and I, and and then as it built, it became clear, wow, we could actually win this thing. <laughs> and uh, that's when we launched American Promise in 2016. So for I imagine a lot of people listen to this, yeah, too much money in politics, but it's an abstract problem. We don't necessarily all have the stats at our fingertips. So can you give me a couple of examples in statistics and numbers about the size of this issue? We've spent about $60 billion with a B, $60 billion in the last 10 years on federal and state elections. Most of that money now is coming from outside the campaigns themselves, because what Citizens United did was say that so-called independent spending um, cannot be limited. So that created the super PACs and the dark money. There was almost none of that in, say, 2000. Um, now it's it's billions of dollars in every election cycle. The last presidential race was um, in that cycle in 2016 was over six billion, um, closing on ten, according to some estimates. This one's going to be much more, but it filters down this whole system through the Senate races and everywhere else. And here's the thing: it's not just the money that sounds abstract and just numbers, but and if you said, uh, you know, as some do, well, we spend a lot of money on potato chips and other things. What's the big deal? The, here's the big deal. Almost all the money comes from less than 1% of the American people. And so the solution you've come up with is a constitutional amendment, a 28th amendment to the Constitution. Now, obviously, there have only been 27 since the founding of our country, which is a little less than 250 years ago. And now you have this big audacious idea. And, you know, a reasonable person could say that it sounds kind of crazy. So tell me why why you've chosen to devote your life to this and why this is going to happen. If you look at how it's actually played out, it's not crazy. It's it's well along to getting ratified by uh, along our deadline, July 4th, 2026. Um, a lot of people don't know. 20 states have formally passed um, resolutions calling for this constitutional amendment. It has over 220 supporters in the, in the House. We need 290, but you think about how close we are now compared to five years ago when we started. In the Senate, 47 senators already voting, ready to vote yes. We need 67, but you know, again, it's not crazy because it's moving. So it has super majority support, Patrick, you know, probably close 75 to 80% in virtually every poll and when people get to vote in a ballot initiative on it, which many Americans have done now. And so every time it comes up where an American gets a chance to say, do we want this or do we not, such as ballot initiatives or these resolutions, overwhelming support. So in some ways, it's, you know, it'd be historical malpractice if we don't do it. You know, it would be crazy if we don't do it because it's something we obviously need. Everybody wants virtually. Very few people are saying, you know, we really need more money in our political system. And I just wish we had more billionaires 
unions and corporations dumping dark money into every election. I haven't heard anybody say that. So I think we should do it. And fortunately, most Americans do. And American Promise has developed an amazing model to actually empower Americans to whatever works for them, get involved and help move it forward. All right. Well, we look forward to seeing in our pocket constitutions, the 28th Amendment. Uh, Jeff Clements from American Promise, thanks for stopping by. Thank you, Patrick. FOMO. And that's the end of another episode. If you have an idea, a story, or a question, you can find me on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, and at www.patrickmcginnis.com, where you can also take the official FOMO Sapiens diagnostic and find out if you're a FOMO Sapiens. FOMO Sapiens is part of the HBR Presents Network. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstrow. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it at Spotify and at iTunes. And as always, you can find me at patrickmcginnis.com. 